Well, good morning. My grandmother taught me many things. One of the things she told me is that there were a lot of sayings that sounded better in Italian than they sounded in English. But this one sounds pretty good in English. It essentially says that God has a lead foot because it moves slowly but lands hard. What we're going to see in today's study in Revelation chapter 15 is that God does bring judgment. If you're like me, you're waiting for it. You're looking for it. You're wanting God to set things right, to bring his judgment on the earth. Not because we want to see people judged, but because we want to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is with that desire that we pray that way, according to the Lord's own teaching, and we remember what Peter wrote in Second Peter, in, in chapter 3, because there are a lot of people, including Christians now, who are beginning to think, well, if God's not going to bring judgment now in this world, maybe he, he's never going to bring his judgment. But we know that Peter wrote, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We understand that while it seems that you're moving slowly, you're moving perfectly according to your will. And your timing is perfect. It's flawless. There's no question that when you move, it is the right time. And as we saw last week, when the harvest is ripe, it will be harvested. When the vintage is ready, judgment will come. And so now we look to you in your word and we ask as we see the beginnings of judgment coming on the earth in the last days, pictured in chapter 15, and we see your people who go through the tribulation and and are committed to you and faithful to you, rewarded with their place in heaven. Help us to remember that the rewards, the blessings are on their way, and your judgment is on the way too, but that in the meantime, before your judgment comes, you are looking to bring a harvest of souls who will serve you for all eternity in heaven. We pray for our loved ones, those that we care so much about, those we're not really sure about, and those that definitely seem to not know you. We lift them up to you, and we ask that you would reach them Because we know you are patient and you're not willing that any should perish. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at the first four verses of chapter 15 in the book of Revelation. We read in verse 1, I saw in heaven, John writes, another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So we see this scene here. We see this scene of of the 
preparation for God's judgment, God is about to do something that we're all praying for. He is going to judge the enemies of the faith. He's going to judge those who have persecuted God's people, martyred God's people, hurt people. And we want that. We want to see the judgment of God, not because we don't want to see salvation, but because we don't, we no longer want to see those that we care about and those in the world suffer. And when the Lord returns, we know that he will bring an end to that type of suffering on this planet. But it comes with judgment, and judgment will surely come. John sees this marvelous sign. As I've pointed out before, signs are symbols. They're pictures. They mean things. They're not meant to be taken literally, but there's a symbolism in these signs. And this sign here in heaven is seven angels with the seven last plagues. Now, John saw these seven angels, and we know that their seven plagues of judgment will, in fact, bring about the completion of God's wrath on the earth. And, and that is what we're looking for. When, when the Lord returns, he's returning to save his own, but also to bring judgment. That's what we studied last week in chapter 14. Now, these seven angels are of a specific order and rank in heaven. In fact, they may be the same seven angels that stand before God who were given the seven trumpets. They may be an entirely different group of angels, but they are similar to the other seven angels that sounded their trumpets in this, those seven angels had sounded their trumpets, which also brought judgment on the earth. So you may be asking, and I've asked this question as well, well, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments we're we're about to study in the book of Revelation, are they the same? Well, they're similar. In fact, one is sort of the introduction, the other is the completion. So you'll see that the the trumpet judgments are very similar to the bowl judgments. And it seems that when the trumpets are blown and the seven angels that have the trumpets blow their trumpets, judgment begins to happen. God's wrath begins to be poured out on the earth. And then you have these bowl judgments which represent the completion of the judgment of God on the earth. But they're very similar and they're linked and we'll see that starting next week. Now, they may be archangels. There's a lot of literature in church history about archangels and angels and cherubim and seraphim. And the, the, the truth is we really don't know a lot about angels, and nor are we really encouraged to study angelology. We are certainly encouraged to study God's word. Angels or messengers are a part of God's word, but they're not the focus of our study. I will say, though, that there are archangels. They're mentioned twice in the New Testament, in First Thessalonians and in the book of Jude. Michael is actually the only archangel that is named in Scripture. There are others that are mentioned in church teachings, but they're not biblical figures. They're not biblical characters. Michael is the chief prince, the one that watches over Israel. And we know from chapter 12 that he will lead the armies of heaven against Satan's angels. So he figures prominently. But whether these are archangels or not, I I don't know. I don't think we do know. What we do know is they are charged with bringing about the completion of God's wrath on the earth. Now, one of the other things that John described in this vision is a sea of glass. A sea of glass before the throne of God. It seems to be mixed with fire. Now, in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, there was a bronze sea. Now, understand, it's a bronze, a polished bronze sea, or tub, if you will, and it's filled with water, and it looks sort of like a sea of glass when it's still. Now, this bronze sea 
that was placed in Solomon's temple or right outside the holy place was used for cleansing and it represented God's pure and holy judgment. So you're going to see a theme here. We're talking about God's judgment. Everything points to that. And then we're told why the judgment is coming in just a minute. But for now, a sea of glass in heaven is similar to the sea of brass or bronze sea that was used for cleansing at the tabernacle and also at the temple. But it it points to judgment. The metal bronze or brass is always connected with God's judgment. The pillars outside Solomon's temple were in fact made of brass. All of the articles of furniture outside the holy place were made of brass. The idea, judgment, the altar, the bronze altar, the judgment for sin. Once you entered the tabernacle or the temple, then you started to see gold and some silver underneath holding up the tabernacle. So the metal bronze, the sea, all point to God's judgment. And so it makes sense that this vision would be consistent. And what did John see? Well, he saw those who had been victorious over the beast standing beside the sea of glass in heaven. And now we see why the judgment is coming. God doesn't bring judgment for no reason. You and I, we may be a little annoyed with someone and we want something retaliatory to happen. But God isn't like that. He, he, is, he is slow, he is patient, but not as men consider slowness. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We've read that this morning. So when we consider that, understand that God does not bring judgment for no reason. A lot of people in this world think that God is sort of ambivalent to the things that happen in the lives of mankind and his people. I've been uh, watching a series, a streaming series on uh, mythology, which you guys know I love. And, and as I've been watching that and, and, and remembering all of the stories that I read as a child and studied in school, one of the things that comes out loud and clear is that the Greeks and the Romans, the pagan world, had an understanding of the gods that they were capricious and cruel. And they did what served them, and they, and they did whatever they needed to do at the expense of human beings, many times according to their own wills, lusts, and desires. That was the mindset of the Greeks and the Romans. They, they saw the gods, the creators, as cruel. And we know that God is love, amen? That God is not cruel, and he's not capricious. He's patient and loving. So when we talk about God's judgment, put that against his love. So every aspect of God's judgment is equal to and consistent with his character. That is, God is love. So God does not bring judgment unnecessarily. In fact, one could argue he is, as the scripture says, long-suffering, abounding in mercy, compassionate and kind. So if you, like myself, get up in the morning and you say, I can't believe he's allowing these things to continue, that can answer the question in your heart as to why. Because he is patient. He's patient with this wicked world. You and I have probably run out of patience a long time ago. But understand, God has not. When the time comes, he will bring judgment. It will be the best possible time. It will be in the best possible way. But it will be severe. It will be severe. 
And so why? Why the judgment? Because God is about to bring judgment, as we see here in this prophecy, speaking of the last days, specifically because of the way that the world and the evil world system has treated his people. See, that's the thing you need to understand. God brings judgment. That judgment is a vengeance that he brings against the world because they treated his people poorly, badly, and persecuted them, had them killed. And that's why judgment will come. And if you think that it shouldn't come, think about what kind of a loving God, if God is love, would not bring accountability to those who would destroy the lives of the innocent, and specifically his people. So that's why, and that's why in heaven at this time, those who had been victorious over the beast, and we talked about this in chapter 14, their victory is to be faithful in the face of death. So they are killed, they are martyred for their faith, and that's why they're in heaven, victorious because they didn't bow to the Antichrist. Victorious over the beast, and over his image, and over the number of his name. These are Messianic Jews. We've been introduced to them before. Back in chapter 12, we talked briefly about them in chapter 13, and and also in chapter 14, in chapter 7. This keeps coming up. Now, the beast is mentioned here, and maybe you haven't been with us, so let me explain. The beast is a person. He is a coming world ruler. His kingdom is also referred to as the beast, but he is the coming world ruler that will lead a revived Eurocentric Roman Empire. Daniel talks a lot about this. So does the book of Revelation. We see the foundations of that empire being laid, but that empire does not exist as of yet. We were introduced not only to the beast, but we were introduced to the image of the beast, that was given in this vision, or in these visions, given breath to speak and to kill those that refuse to worship it. So worldwide worship will be inflicted upon the world, and those that refuse to worship the beast, or his image, or receive the mark of the beast, will be beheaded for their faith. And that is how this group of individuals is victorious over the beast. Now, the number of his name, it's a mark. It's just a mark on the right hand or the forehead of his worshipers. It identifies them as rejecting God and worshiping the devil and his chosen leaders. See, in this world today, we talked about this last week, people are making choices. Every day, people are making choices. Choosing the way of evil the way of wickedness, the way of insanity, if you ask me. And then there are those choosing the way of God. And as time marches on, more and more people will choose one or the other. And as we get to the end of this book, uh, we're actually told, and we'll get there in the end of our studies in a few weeks, but one of the things we're told, where John is actually told, is that those who do wrong will continue to do wrong, And those who are vile will continue to be vile. And those who do right will continue to do right. And those who are holy will continue to be holy. What does that mean? That means that in this world, there are two types of people, as we talked about last week. The wicked and the righteous. So which are you? But when you see the wicked and you lose hope, you're losing sight of God's plan. He told us there would be wicked people right until the end. And judgment will come upon them. And when you think, well, I don't know if I can trust God because the world is so wicked. It's not the 1950s anymore, you know, or the 80s. It's, it's not the world I grew up in. And believe me, in my late 50s, I, I look at the world. I don't recognize the world we live in anymore. 
I think fondly of memories as a child and growing up in this area, and I think to myself, this is so different than what I expected the world to be. We all thought it would be the Jetsons flying around. Can you imagine? You know how bad the highways are, right? Imagine add the element of a flying car. Talk about the end days. I mean, my goodness, that would be about the worst thing that could happen. But as I think about these things, I have to be reminded, I need the scripture to remind me that a day is coming, and it includes the wicked prospering for a time, for a season, until they are judged. So you need to stop freaking out, if you are, and stop thinking all is lost, because actually everything is going according to plan. And that should be very encouraging for you. Well, this group of individuals were standing beside this highly reflective surface that's mixed with fire, that speaks of judgment. And by the way, it's interesting because it is sort of a Red Sea of sorts. But like the Red Sea that the Jews crossed, this sea represents God's righteous judgment on his enemies. The Red Sea, Yam Suf in the scriptures, the Sea of Reeds, actually brought judgment on the Egyptians. So all of these symbols point to God's judgment, and I'll point them out. Their association with this fiery sea implies that God is judging the earth on their behalf. See, God is not going to let us, as his people, be persecuted without there being an accountability for that persecution. God does have our back. He does. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but he does. Now, these individuals, they held harps that were given to them by God. So there is, as I've mentioned many times, worship music in heaven played on stringed instruments. They're going to have harps just like those that were redeemed before the tribulation had harps. Stringed instruments to praise God. We can only imagine what that will be like. Although our worship team does a good job of giving us a little bit of a foretaste of that worship with stringed instruments. But these individuals sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And that identifies them as those messianic Jews we've talked so much about. For you see, they're going to sing Moses' song of deliverance as Jews. Now maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. In Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses. It's the song that the Jews, the Israelites, sang when they had crossed the Red Sea. I encourage you to read it this week. Exodus 15. It's a very encouraging scripture. But it speaks of the Israelites being delivered from the Egyptians when the Red Sea parted and they crossed through on dry land and then the Egyptians tried to cross through and what happened? They were drowned in the Red Sea. So you see, again, pointing to God's judgment. Pointing to God's judgment. And this song that they'll sing speaks of God's deliverance from their enemies. They're also, though, going to sing the song of the Lamb. Now, why would they do that? Because these are the 144,000 sealed servants of God, who are, we've talked so much about in chapter 7 and 14, they're sealed by God. They are Jewish males who know their heritage, and they are not married. They're, they're single. They're, they're living their lives for God, and they will ultimately be persecuted and beheaded for their faith when God deems the time is right. But they will find themselves in the presence of God for all eternity, worshiping God as we see here. And God will bring judgment to answer the persecution that they endured. But what do they do? And we've read it already. They worship God Almighty. Now, just a little note here. I am of the persuasion that believe that 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42, give us the important things that we should be involved in in the church. And that speaks of the apostles' doctrine, that is the teaching of God's word. And we're here this morning in God's word. And prayer, which as you know, we've started, we have prayer throughout the week, but prayer specifically on Sunday mornings at 8.15 down in the room underneath the sanctuary. That's taking place. We also see in the scriptures, we talk about fellowship. Fellowship, which is, of course, us coming together in fellowship, in Christ, where two or three are gathered, he's in the midst. And we talk about the breaking of bread. That is communion with God and with one another in the presence of God. I believe that when we talk about prayer, the most important form of prayer, in fact, is worship. Do you know that worship and prayer are really the same thing? In fact, worship is a type of prayer. There are many different types of prayer, everything from intercession, praying for someone else, supplication, praying for your own needs, confession, confessing your sins before God, repenting and asking for forgiveness. But there's also adoration, which is praising God. So maybe 815 is a little early for you to get here for prayer. But please understand that when we begin our worship service at 9 o'clock, not 915, not 930, we are actually in prayer to God. So my challenge to you is to not miss out on that opportunity. I'll leave it at that. These individuals in heaven worship the Lord God Almighty. They declare that his deeds are great and marvelous. They called him the Lord God Almighty, that is the all-powerful in Hebrew, El Shaddai. They declare that his ways are just and true. Now this is their prayer, but this is their praise. They call them the king of the ages. They, they question who would not fear him and bring glory to his name. They declare that he alone is holy. They declare that all nations would come and worship before him. They declare that his righteous acts had been revealed. Now, why is this important to me? Because as I look at that song, which is perhaps part of the song of the Lamb, we know the song of Moses, that's mentioned in Exodus 15, As I look at that, it really breaks down a lot of things that we can say and think about when we're in worship. For example, we tend to think about worship in in this way. We're either praising God, right? Talking about God, saying anything about God that's true is praise. Praising God or worshiping God that is surrendering our hearts to God. That's why we call it praise and worship. There's two different types of praise, or adoration, which are all types of prayer. But as we look at the description, uh, we think about our worship songs that we're, I know the, the worship leaders are very careful to select. There are a lot of popular worship songs that don't make the cut, either because they're silly, sentimental, or biblically untrue. And our worship leaders do a great job of weeding them out. They may be great songs. I happen to like a lot of songs, secular songs even, But these are not praise songs, or they're not up to the degree that we consider a praise song to be. Now, some churches will say that if it isn't a hymn, it doesn't count, doesn't make the cut. We're very open to not only hymns, but we're open to all of the different spiritual songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when we select those songs for worship, they point us in the direction of Christ and our relationship with him. But they oftentimes declare his deeds as great and marvelous. They oftentimes refer to God as the Almighty God or the El Shaddai. In fact, there's an old praise song I remember, El Shaddai. 
They declare his ways that are just and true. They call him the king of the ages. They recognize who he is. They question who would not fear him. Some of our songs specifically say those things. And they bring glory to his name. And they declare that he alone is holy. These sound like the words to many of our praise songs. They declare that all the nations would come and worship before him and that his righteous acts had been revealed. So when we say those things or something like that in our praise songs, we're echoing the song of the Lamb. And by the way, worship is all about the Lamb of God. When you think of worship, you're worshiping God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about it that way. That's how God has prescribed in his word for us to approach his throne and to worship him. So that's what's taking place there. These who are victorious over the beast and have been victorious are seeing the judgment of God about to be poured out and they're worshiping God. So here's what we need to do. I promise you, life on this planet will become so much more bearable if you do this. When you're feeling stressed and you've watched too much cable network news, or too many silly YouTube videos that tell you that the end is near. And the end is near, but tell you in a way that makes you panic. Or someone's running around worried about the banking system, or the stock market, or the next political election. Here's what you can do. You can sing the song of the Lamb. You can worship God. You can do all the things we're talking about. And here's the beauty of it. We do this twice a week as a group on Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings. And you can do this anytime you want. Cry out to God and worship him. This is how you're going to conquer those feelings of despair and depression. This is how you're going to be victorious in this dark world and how you're not going to succumb to the silliness that would suggest that God has somehow lost control. I don't want to see any more depressed Christians. Christians have no good reason. I know the world is dark. And if I don't do this, I get depressed too. I begin to despair. I begin to think, oh my goodness, what is the world coming to? Oh, you know what? It's coming to exactly what God said it would come to. That encourages me. As bad as it is, it encourages me. So how I conquer that feeling that comes over me when I consider the darkness of this world, it is through worship. It is through praise and worship of God. I always feel, yes, you can feel better when you praise and worship God. Because what it does is it takes those emotions, negative emotions, and it surrenders them to God, and now those emotions become positive. So yes, praise and worship can make you feel better. So why aren't we doing more? If the world is getting darker, we should be worshiping more. Again, I'll leave it at that. So what does John see? Well, now we get to verse 5. And we see that John has another part of this vision where he sees God's temple in heaven open. And there is a temple in heaven. In verse 5, After this, John writes, I looked and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. So they're dressed as priests, really, almost. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. 
And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now this week we're just looking at the setup. We're looking at the judgment of God about to be poured out. Starting next week, then we'll begin to look at the actual wrath of God being poured out on the earth. But the opening of God's temple in heaven is a prelude to God's judgment on earth. It shows that God's about to act on behalf of his people Israel, and that's why the temple is mentioned. Now, we understand that heaven itself is his temple, since it is truly his dwelling place. And John saw God's heavenly temple shortly after he measured the earthly temple that was to come back in chapter 11. There is a heavenly temple. God's earthly temple on earth is where the Jews worship God who resides in heaven. But there is a temple in heaven. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that there's a heavenly temple of which the earthly is only a copy. So what was built on earth, the temples that were built on earth, and even the tabernacle built by Moses were pictures of, copies of, reminiscent of the temple in heaven. By the way, there are also four times in the book of Revelation where there are heavenly openings. Here it's the opening of the temple. There are heavenly openings. I'll give you the four. We saw back in chapter 4, verse 1, there was a door standing open in heaven. I believe that symbolizes the call to the church, God's people, to come into the presence of God when the door is open in heaven. And who said, I am the door? Jesus Christ. So through Jesus Christ, his people who are alive at that time will be caught up in the air to meet those who are dead in Christ to forever be with the Lord. That we refer to as the rapture of the church. There is some debate about when it happens, but not if it happens. And that door standing open in heaven, to me, really points to that moment. By the way, that happens right after the church age. And it's interesting that the word for church, ecclesia in the Greek, is not used again until all the way at the end of the book when we've already gotten past the vision for the future. So for that reason and for many other reasons, I believe that God's people, the church, will be caught up to heaven before the seven years of tribulation begin. But the opening of God's temple in heaven for him to act on behalf of Israel took place in chapter 11, verse 19. We studied that together. And here the opening of God's temple in heaven is open for him to pour out his wrath on the earth. So notice, just notice with me, the door is opened in heaven, the church comes into the presence of God. Chapter 4. Chapter 11. There's an opening of God's temple in heaven. And he begins to act on behalf of his people, Israel. So you have the church, you have Israel. Notice this. Then there's the opening of God's temple in heaven for him to pour out his wrath on the earth on behalf of the 144,000 Jews. These are separate groups of people with very different testimonies and experiences of God. One, the church. The other, Israel. And then the 144,000, sometimes referred to as Messianic Jews or tribulation saints. So... I'm a dispensationalist. I believe that God deals differently with different groups of people at different times. Not everyone feels that way, and that's fine. But that's what I see here in God's word. Finally, though, there is one final opening in heaven in chapter 19, verse 11, and we'll get there in a few weeks, where we see heaven once again standing open. 
And this time, it's open for Christ to return with all those people, all of his people, the church, those in Christ, all of them to return to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. Can I hear an amen? So those are the four openings. Notice, though, that the temple is referred to in this section that we've read in chapter 15 as the tabernacle of the testimony. The tabernacle of the testimony. Now, that's a reference to the book of Exodus. The tabernacle was a portable temple. It was a tent, but it was portable, and it was used for the Jews to worship God during the exodus from Egypt. The temple and the tabernacle, because the temple was built by Solomon to replace the tabernacle, the temple and the tabernacle represent God's presence among his people. And the testimony, the tabernacle of the testimony, the testimony refers to the two tablets of the law of God given to Moses. So just give you a little interpretation of what we're talking about. There. This is a very Jewish scene. That's the point. A very Jewish scene. All the symbols are from the book of Exodus. In fact, the seven angels with the seven plagues came out of the temple in heaven, dressed in the traditional garments of the high priest, or at least similarly dressed. You'll remember back in chapter 1 that Jesus was dressed in the traditional garments of the high priest. And then one of the four living creatures, which we talked about some time ago, gave seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God to each of these angels. Of course, the four living creatures are created beings, but they encircle the throne of God. They are the angelic creations that are closest to the throne of God. I refer you back to chapter 4, where we talked in great deal about them. Of course, these seven golden bowls contain eternal God's wrath against the earth, They are being prepared. They will be poured out. And when they are poured out, God's wrath on this wicked world will be complete. Amen? Now, the temple in heaven, we're told, was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And this is a familiar scene as well. In fact, God's holy presence had filled the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus 40 when it was consecrated. In fact, Moses could not enter the tabernacle while the glory of the Lord filled it. And then God's holy presence filled Solomon's earthly temple when he built it in 1 Kings chapter 8. And the priests could not enter Solomon's temple while the glory of the Lord filled it. This is, in this symbol here, God's holy presence manifested in the heavenly temple. And no one can enter the heavenly temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels bring those plagues on the earth. Now, there are many images from the exodus of Israel in chapters 15, and we'll see in chapter 16. I'll give you a little preview. There are plagues. There's a Red Sea, the Song of Moses, the Tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God. All of these figure or feature prominently in this vision. But there are also several of the plagues of Egypt which are repeated. For example, there's a plague of boils. There's waters turning to blood. There's darkness coming upon the enemy's throne and a plague of hail. All of this points to the truth that the wrath of God being poured out on the earth is being poured out on behalf of his people Israel. You might be thinking, well, what about us? Well, we're going to be caught up to the throne. But God is going to bring his judgment in the last days upon those that would harm or seek to harm or persecute or kill those he considers his own people. Now, all of that is a beautiful picture What does it mean for us practically? Well, first it helps us to be patient, right? It helps us to look and say, well, God has a plan. 
And, and you might be wanting to sort of start that plan now. You might be thinking, wouldn't it be great if? Or maybe that's just me. But I look at the world and I say to myself, when, oh Lord, when? When will you bring your righteous judgment on these wicked people? But I also know that God's love will wait until the last possible minute that none would perish. So how do you do that? How do you balance the judgment of God and the love of God? Well, Jesus Christ is that perfect balance. For you see, he took upon himself the judgment of God to save sinners. He became the judgment. He endured the judgment of God the Father by becoming sin for us. He who knew no sin, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He chose to take your place so that you don't have to experience judgment. See, we can cry out for mercy and receive it because Christ cried out to his Father and received judgment on our behalf. That's what it means to be saved. It means to look to Jesus as the Savior who hung on the cross in your place and took upon himself the judgment of God. So while we're in a hurry to bring judgment because we'd like to see the world set right, we have to remember that we have been blessed to receive the mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Many have yet to receive that mercy. So in addition to worshiping God to help you get through these dark times, Another thing that we might choose to do is to preach the gospel. To share the message of Jesus Christ with all those on this earth that have yet to respond to it. Not to be obnoxious. Not to bother people or annoy people with the message of the gospel. No, not at all. But to share the love of God and, yes, the truth of God's coming judgment, because that's a part of the gospel message, but the love of God, that those that hear this message would respond, that they would receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would recognize that he died on the cross for their sins, but that he rose again on the third day to promise and deliver to us the newness of life for all eternity. But that he's coming again, as we say, to judge the living and the dead, who will be judged in one simple way. What have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, This gospel message is exactly how we should be responding to this wicked world. There's so many other ways that are unprofitable, even unbiblical, that we could respond to the darkness. We are told to preach to the darkness. We are called to bring the sword of the Spirit into the darkness, which is the word of God. May we, here at Calvary Chapel, always be busy about those things that you tell us were important to the early church, the study of your word, prayer and fellowship, prayer which includes worship and fellowship and the breaking of bread, communion with you and with one another. Lord, may those be the things that define us as a people. But may we add to that only this one thing, because it goes on to say, and the Lord save those daily brought into the church daily, those that were being saved. Lord, we know that you'll save souls, but that we simply need to share the message. May that be our heart. And may every heart here respond to that message this morning in the affirmative by giving their hearts and lives to you, claiming your cross as salvation for their sins and the empty tomb as the promise 
fulfilled for eternal life. We await your return, Lord. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.